Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode. It is a very special episode this week, perhaps one of the most important conversations I've ever had on the podcast Dr. Nicole LaPera, who you might know as the holistic psychologist, was trained in clinical psychology at Cornell and the School for Social Research. But as a clinical psychologist in her own private practice, Dr. Nicole found herself really frustrated by the limitations of traditional psychotherapy. And I know many of you have experienced that, and I've experienced that myself. So wanting more for her patients and for herself, because at that point, despite being a trained clinical psychologist, she was totally stuck. So she began a journey to develop a philosophy of mental, physical, and spiritual health to help people heal themselves. This work and this conversation that we have is a paradigm shift. Dr. Nicole's teachings empower us in actually quite simple ways unbelievably, to break free from the generational cycles that we get stuck in and to create who we really are, who we really want to become. This is what she calls self-healing. And you would have heard me talk about this if you're a regular listener on the podcast, that my big breakthroughs and the big changes, the massive changes actually that I've experienced in myself have not come from traditional therapy. They have come from me observing a behavior in myself I want to change, trying out new behavior, and becoming really aware of what I notice. Journaling is probably the cornerstone of that practice for me, which is why you'll hear me talk about it week in, week out. This is a really important conversation because at its core, which as you know, is my passion and what we talk about every week on the podcast, is how behaviours get passed down through the generations. Because there is nothing more profound that we can do as mothers and parents than to work on our own stuff. Because the sad truth is, what we don't heal, we can pass on. So there is nothing more important to do when we become parents than our own inner work. And this conversation is almost like the masterclass in why that is and how to do it. I just wish every parent could listen to this conversation. What a shift we would see in the world. If you enjoy it and it resonates and you feel empowered and inspired, please share it. I know it's not always easy to share some of these deep conversations, but take that risk, have that courage, share this with another parent that you think is ready to hear it, is ready to start looking at themselves and doing this work. I hope you really enjoy it. For me, it was a total honour to sit with Dr. Nicole. Here it is. 
Dr. Nicole, this is a bit of an honour for me. I often have to do hours of prep before a guest, but I actually don't have any notes. I didn't have to do any prep because I think I started following you when you were about 100,000 on Instagram and your work has been very profound and it's a real honour for me. I'm so excited to share this with my audience because I think the work that you're doing is so vital for parents and mothers who listen to this podcast. So thank you for being here. Of course. And thank you, Zoe. Working with mothers, supporting them, helping them heal is such impactful work. So I'm honored to be here with you. I want to ask you first up about, you know, I mentioned I started following you. 100,000 is pretty big, right? But now you are like a movement and you call it a movement. And I'm wondering, are you able to contain how are you containing that success? Like that is in a short amount of time, you've suddenly become very visible with a pioneering message. How do you hold those triggers that I'm sure it brings up for you? Aside from obviously the astronomical growth that I've seen that the account has seen in the past two years, if I'm honest, even going back in time to that July, when I decided to create the account, even the idea of one person's eyes or presenting my truth to another was big for me. I talk a lot about my own healing journey and the content. And there's a big part of my subconscious that I talk a lot about of my inner child that as much as she desperately wants to be seen, the idea of being seen authentically, right? Sharing my truth, sharing my ideas, sharing my own healing journey and the way that I'm now, you know, the tools I'm offering for people to heal holistically even the idea of anyone being on the receiving end of it was a lot for me. So I share that it's 100,000, 3 million, anyone looking at my truth does bring up triggers at times. It's been an interesting process and it's definitely part of my own healing journey, navigating being so visible online. What do you say to your scared little girl who I imagine wants to run and hide multiple points in your day? Absolutely. She wants to run and hide under the, the table that she actually <laughs> The hide under for a very many years in childhood. Now I try to just remind her that she's not alone. For me, one of my core, you know, difficult feelings in that childhood was of loneliness, of not feeling like I had the connections around me in presence and support and emotions. So for me, that little girl, when I feel scared in any way, I go right back to scared and alone. So for me, it's important to remind myself that I can be scared. I can handle scared feelings and I don't have to feel necessarily alone in doing that anymore. Mm, and I love, uh, let's talk about childhood. Cause I mean, I talk about it every episode because like you, you know, my experience was that only when I was able to start unpacking that did my healing really begin and I think so many people connect with your work is because the childhood that you described wasn't what would have been fit into a traumatic childhood in the very traditional model. And yet you describe with such eloquence and simplicity what the impact was of having an emotionally unavailable mother you talk about quite a lot. Can you talk to that? Because actually I had very similar experience. I appreciate you asking. And if I'm honest, you know, not having that big T of trauma. So what do I mean when I say that? In the 90s, we did finally as a field determine that events in childhood, traumas, if you will, affect us into adulthood. They affect our physical body in terms of physical ailments. And of course, they affect us psychologically. So that was big news. And that's important to know, right? Our past informs our present, even if it's decades 
as it is for many of us later. So reading the story as a human, of course, first, as we always are, and also as a practitioner, as a clinician at the time, you know, getting really clear on what they meant by trauma and what they meant at that time when I referenced big T trauma, they mean really egregious instances of abuse, physical, sexual neglect. And very similarly, I read, I took the ACEs scale. We had a 10 point assessment, I think it was, to determine how high, how many of those traumas you had. Of course, the higher the score, the more likely those ailments later in life. So taking that test, I only scored a one. And upwards of 60, I think, percent of the population score around a one, meaning I wasn't very high in trauma. Yet by that point, I had accumulated many hours working with people who had scored well above a one, upwards of a 10. I worked in inpatient units. I worked in substance use clinics. I worked in people that had histories of incarceration. And what I was seeing is very similar habits and patterns in the daily life. So for me, it was really confusing. I was wondering what the heck was wrong with me? How broken am I that I'm struggling in the same ways, yet I don't have those same big issues or nothing had happened to me in childhood? So for me, it was really important to begin to dive into that and to explore. And what I've come to the realization is that there are many other woundings, consistent events that happen as we're aging, as we're growing, that do affect us and continue to carry the same symptoms, if you will, into adulthood. Your graphics are incredible. Obviously, that's why you've grown so quickly, because what you're able to do is distill these quite complex things really simply. One of my favorites, there are many, is the one where you talk about childhood trauma is also... And there's a couple as a parent, which can be uncomfortable reading, actually, because I think as a parent, I feel like I'm constantly unpacking my own childhood and holding that and also thinking how I am with my own children. One of them is around emotional connection and being seen and heard. And I know that you had that experience of not getting that consistently. Can you talk to what behaviors that then led to in you and what as parents we can do so we don't then inflict the same trauma with a small T onto our own children? It gets complex, doesn't it? The ups and the downs. Yeah. I mean, parenting is very, very complex because I think you spoke it very beautifully, Zoe, in acknowledging we are the product of parents. So we, you know, we're modeled ways of being in the world that again, I believe we carry well into adulthood. And now I'm not a parent myself, so I can't fully relate to the experience of having a child though, in terms of what we need to do now we need to parent someone else. So that does, I think, involve a lot of different complications, a lot of different layers. If we throw into the fact that as hard as this is, I imagine for a lot of parents even admit we can become even triggered by our child, activated by their way of being in the world. And now, right, just similar to the way we're triggered in our partnerships with our friends, with our family members, a child is a little human. So it still applies. Obviously, you can imagine how complicated then that becomes in navigating those moments. So just to go back to what I mean when I talk about the need to expand the definition of trauma. So here I am carrying again, the effects, the after effects of not those big tease, I believe that there's a whole world of trauma, like I was talking about earlier, that surpasses those instances of physical or sexual abuse or extreme neglect. And what I know to be the case is that as humans, we're born into a complete state of dependency, meaning we can't meet any 
quite honestly, of our needs at all on our own. Probably listeners might have heard by now, humans referenced as social creatures. We're wired to connect. I think this is language, very thankfully, that's getting kind of thrown around the collective because that too is true. So when we're born into that dependency, we are wired and ready to connect with other humans, primarily in service of ensuring our survival, of making sure that our needs get met. And so I believe that there are needs in three very general areas that all of us humans express throughout a lifetime. We have physical needs of our body. How much sleep does it need? What nutrition makes it feel its best? Wellness, essentially. I believe we have emotional needs. How do we navigate the hormonal and the energetic shifts that come along with this very complicated experience of being human? And I also believe that our spirit or that soul, that indescribable entity, that usness, right? That thing that makes me, me and you, you, that I think a lot of us are finally tuning into, okay, whatever name we want to give it. I think we're all beginning to become aware that there is that essence in each of us. And I believe that essence has those three needs to be seen, to be heard, and just to have the safety to be itself, to just naturally express, to allow me just to be me safely and to be received by the world. And when that doesn't happen, the latter consistently, when we don't have a parent who's fully present, who's balanced in their own physical and emotional and spiritual bodies to receive us, to reflect us back to us as in childhood, we begin to modify ourselves because we're also incredibly adaptive because we need these relationships, remember. So what do we do? We start to very gradually, and none of this is even conscious. For most of us, it happened when we are in toddlerhood, when we're first starting to now relate to other humans, we begin to modify our way. We begin to put on a mask. We begin to turn down this emotion and only begin to express certain aspects of ourselves. And the more consistently that happens, or so I think, obviously we flash forward in time because I believe we become very patterned. We don't just do that and stop. We keep doing that. Now it becomes our partnerships, our romantic partnerships, our friendships, our professional relationships. We're always shifting and modifying ourselves. And I believe that results in a lot of symptomology, a lot of lack of presence, a disconnection from ourself, and a whole slew of complicated feelings and ways of being that are compromises. Have you ever met anyone who hasn't had some of those adaptations on some level? If I'm honest, when I speak about these and I do so universally, and then I have people around the world kind of acknowledging and resonating The simple answer is I've yet to find that human who's had the ideal situation. And I speak about this a lot when I talk about parenting in my new book, acknowledging speaking directly to parents, and I'll do so right here. It's a tall order. You're not going to get it right all of the time. I, as a human, can't fully be present for my partner who I would love to be fully present for all of the time. So how can we expect us to do it perfectly with our children? We can't. I'm also going to offer that it's okay. There's actually value in stress in childhood. There's actually value in having those moments of disconnect as long as there's reparation on the other side. In those moments, what we're teaching our children is actually resilience, the ability to overcome 
adversity. So while there's no perfection, it's a good thing that there's no perfection. Because like I said, it gives us as humans opportunities to adapt, to grow, so that our then child, just to continue with this conversation, can begin in time to grow and adapt and navigate the world alone. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, perfection is another trauma response. Trying to be perfect all the time is a core part of my trauma response. I did the good girl adaptation very well. So I have to be very careful of that. But I think what's so powerful to hear is that you say it so simply, you know, we're born with this need for connection because we're desired and wired for safety. We adapt around that need for safety. And then we become adults and we're stuck in these patterns of codependency or giving our power away or not being able to hold our boundaries or just feeling stuck. Then we become a parent. And I think one of my passions in life, I do think it's my purpose, is that there's no better time to start unpacking this stuff. A, because I think it all gets triggered. I mean, that all got shown to me when I became a parent anyway. But also, like you say, it's not about doing it perfectly. But when we have the awareness, I don't know about, well, I do know about your mum because you kind of share about your parents. Like mine didn't have any awareness of this. It was so unconscious. So I just modeled it and picked it up. So if someone's listening and they're like resonating and nodding, where does someone start to unpack their own conditioning in order to maybe bring some more consciousness to the next generation? I'm smiling very big because you just answered that question and using that word, that practice that I go on and on endlessly about, which is to become conscious. Whenever asked about how, you know, navigating life, creating change in our world, you'll always hear me revert back to what I believe is that foundational practice of becoming conscious and acknowledging that it is a practice that by contrast, the large majority of us aren't living consciously, aren't showing up in each and every moment, fully present to the moment at hand. Most of us are in our past, you know, worrying about the argument that happened or the meeting that I have to do later. We're not fully present, making choices based on what's happening now. So most of us are doing that upwards of, depending on who you read, 80, 90% of our day, we're living from what I call that habit self stored in our subconscious, where all the habits and patterns that we picked up in childhood live. And I saw this very clearly in my old practice. I would see, and I would see this in my own life, easier for most of us to see something in someone else before we see how how patterned we are. But what I would see, and this was really frustrating because here I was as the clinician in the room, as the clinical psychologist, and I would see week after week, very well-set intentions, even plans to change, to do these things differently, to break these habits that were no longer serving my clients. Yet week after week, I would get a report of, "Mm, I still said that same thing that I didn't want to say, or, oh, I didn't keep up with that habit that I now want to install in my life, et cetera. For a long time, I wondered, how kind of clinician am I? I can't help these people, can't help them change. And then when I really took a hard look in my life, I realized, oh, geez, I can't even help myself change. What I came to realize why none of us can change and why we're all stuck is because we are all living from that subconscious place. So the pathway out, first and foremost, is to discover how conscious are you? A lot of us might think we're present. Yeah, I'm here. I'm awake every day. I'm going about my life. But are we really present to the moment at hand or are we just on that blind autopilot? 
So practical suggestion I like to offer for people because I know all of us are walking around with some sort of electronic device today in the form of a phone. And I'd done this myself early on. I came to realize I was never present. I was always lost in thought or just somewhere else. I wasn't in the moment making choices based on the moment. I was making choices based on many past moments or concerns for future moments. So I set my alarm for random times throughout my day. Maybe just start with one time. You probably will forget by the time the alarm goes off at 2.30 this afternoon, say. When that alarm goes off, I want you to just check your attention. Where are you? Are you fully immersed and present in whatever you're doing? Talking to your friend on that work project? Maybe you're eating a bowl of cereal. Are you actually there and present to it? Or are you like the large majority of us and somewhere else? And if we come up with that answer that we're somewhere else, we want to actually begin to fire up a new region in our brain, the conscious, the prefrontal cortex that lives right behind our foreheads. And to do so, we want to hook our attention in the present moment. And we have two hooks that I love to suggest using. Our breath, because chances are, if you're living still in that moment, you're breathing. So if we tune our attention, right, hook it onto just the action of breathing, that allows us to come back into our body and be fully fully present to the moment. For some of us, that's a little hard. It's hard to hook our attention on our breath if we're not used to doing it. For others, it can be our senses. It could be the cereal that we're eating. How does it actually taste? Are you tasting the food? If you're doing the dishes, are you feeling your hands and the warm soap? Can you smell the aroma, et cetera, our senses? So we can do a senses check-in and tune our attention into our senses. Same thing happens. We drop into our body. Now I'm fully present. The reason why I'm suggesting consciousness, especially for parents, many reasons, first and foremost, like I said, that is our opportunity to be present to now, to be present to possibly the child in front of me. For a lot of us and our children, that presence is all that's necessary receiving, right, whatever the child's expression in that moment, whatever it might be, as difficult as it may be to receive, for a lot of us, that soul, that essence, that's all it needs to feel safe, to continue to do that as having a parent who's there for it. We want to obviously expand on why consciousness is so important. Consciousness allows us to begin to make new choices, to begin to break those habits and patterns that many of us have to break in adulthood that allows us to be present and to begin to make new choices. You can see how this conditioning gets passed so easily through, like you say, you know, the majority of people, the vast majority of people are living from that 80, 90% subconscious conditioning, not fully present. A core need of a child is to be seen, heard and validated in the present And if they don't get that because the majority are not in that moment, they adapt and then they go on to become. It's so clear, isn't it, when you start to see it that way. And I think it's so easy. You know, if I think about my day today, you know, I was pretty stressed this afternoon with the work thing. I could see Jesse, my five-year-old, kind of wanting to connect with me. And I just wasn't there. I was physically there. And lots of people would say, it was great. You made her dinner. You were there. You're doing a great job. Well, I would say in that moment, I wasn't there. And that was my experience is that I had a stay at home mum. You know, she was physically with me all day, every day. We were actually enmeshed, very codependent, but she was actually there, but never there. And it's such a difference, isn't it? By being present and present. 
Absolutely. And this also touches on something else that I think is really important to acknowledge when we talk about parenting, because I get asked a lot, how do I break these patterns? How do I avoid doing this You know, with my child? What do I say? What do I do? What about when they're sad? I know I struggle with sadness. How do I teach them how to be sad in a different way or you know, more adaptively, et cetera? Unfortunately, here is where I don't give the steps on what to do or how to teach our child, right? It's not about what we're saying in that moment. It's not even about what we're telling Johnny or Janet to do in that moment. This is, I think, the harder bit of the work. It's what are we doing when we're sad? How are we modeling? Modeling is such more of an impactful process in childhood and affects our children and those around us, what we're showing, how we're relating to them, how, like you're saying, how present or not present we are in that moment is going to be much more impactful than saying the right thing because children are so attuned. And they can pick up on, you might be saying the right words in that moment, though, if you're like your mom and like my mom, and like I spent much of my life a million miles away while I'm saying it, those words fall on deaf ears. So the modeling piece is incredibly important. And it's obviously the harder work, the longer journey. It's us doing the self-healing of our own so that while we're modeling even the healing journey to our children, they're being impacted by that. We can't give what we don't have, right? I can't give emotional stability. I can't give esteem. I can't give presence consciousness to my girls if I don't have it myself. It's kind of impossible. It is impossible, right? Yes. And mostly, you know, what children want and need when they're having any feeling is just that space and that safety to have that feeling. It's a process. It's called Um, Mm co-regulation. In my book, I go into the nervous system a lot. I talk about the body and its physiology a lot because we're impacted by the body in which we live. And from infancy, when children cry, they're dysregulated. Their nervous system is in a state of activation. And like I said, they're completely dependent. So they need a human, another human's nervous system in particular, to help them go from that state of dysregulation back into that calm, safe place. So to speak to the point of the nervous system state of our caregivers, I'll use my mom as an example. My mom too was a stay-at-home mom, ever present to me at all times. All of my physical needs were met. However, my mom carried a lot of trauma from her own childhood around medical issues and around sudden loss. My sister, who was 15 years older than me, had severe medical conditions, kind of throwing my mom into a complete state of consistent activation, constant worry for her child who was seriously medically ill. By the time I came around 15 years later, my mom's attention and her nervous system state was so dysregulated that I didn't have that secure, calm base to come back to. So when we talk about emotions and why it's important for parents to be regulated, it's because the state of our nervous system is going to translate to our ability to help our children calm their own nervous system. And then we carry those same dysregulations with us throughout life. So if I became similar to my mom, stuck in that nervous system state of activation, my nervous system constantly activated, constantly connecting or disconnecting with those around me and affecting all of my relationships. How did you calm your nervous system? Did you become addicted to, what did you become addicted to? Surely that feels like a path to addiction. 
So when I was probably 13, I discovered alcohol and marijuana. And for me, I would already start it dissociating, kind of checking out, being on, I call it my spaceship, not embodied. My body's here and I'm going through the motions of whatever's happening in my family, though Nicole was somewhere else keeping myself safe. Mm-hmm. So by the time I met drugs and alcohol at that time, for me, that was you know, oh, I can ingest this thing, smoke this thing. And now I can be in a pleasant place of disconnection. So I wouldn't necessarily, you know, whether or not I was addicted and if I want to put that label on it, though I did use substances for quite some time to help me regulate or as my best attempt, as I think a lot of us do at regulation. My dissociation symptoms though spanned. So whether or not I was ingesting something, I found many ways to dissociate, to be not present, to keep people at a distance, not to share what's really going on, not even to share with myself how I'm really feeling. So there's many activities, actions, and ways I was in relationships, if you will, that mimicked that same distance, always keeping myself safely away from what at one time were overwhelming feelings without support. I relate. And I think another thing that I've heard you talk about before that I know has a huge validation for people is that one of those results of that disassociation is a lack of memory. Yes. So for a very long time, probably discovered it when I started to share or hear my friends probably in high school begin to, you know, share family, childhood experiences, what it was like when they were kids, how holidays were celebrated. And as I would look, think back, I really had blanks. I didn't have much throughout my twenties, relaying stories. I have friends who, you know, told me about three months ago, we were at this place before. And I'm like, "Mm, we were. And I started to put together what I was now defining at that point, cognitive issues. I was convinced I have memory issues, something wrong with me because no one else around me was seemingly having the same lack of memories. It got to the point where I actually um, found a researcher who was researching some sort of cognitive thing in, in the UK, I believe. And I emailed this person saying that I was willing to be a test subject for this very obscure brain condition because I was convinced all the symptoms, lack of autobiographical memory, that's memories about our childhood, among other things, I was convinced I must have that disease. So I was going to be a test subject. She never wrote back to me. And it took some time and researching the nervous system to realize that it wasn't that I had an issue in my brain at all. It was that I was so dissociated. I was so not present. This is the simplest way I describe it. If I'm not here for what's happening, I have no memory to go back to. I don't have the imprint of what happened because I was never really there in the first place. And of course, the more consistently you're not there. So the more consistently I was on my spaceship, which was quite consistently, that for me led to this absence of memory. So when I started to speak about it online, on social media, and all of these other instances of people that lacked memory started to pour in, I started to feel more and more relieved that, wow, I mean, saddened and relieved that I wasn't alone and broken. And though that also there's a lot of us that lack these memories for probably similar mechanisms. We're just not present enough to go back to what happened. Isn't it fascinating how, I guess, your training as a clinical psychologist led you straight to there's something wrong with my mind. Like you sounds like you were seeking that diagnosis, which is kind of what that model is based on, right? And actually that helped you zero. <laughs> and what helped you was the model that you teach today, which is the 
holistic model of body work and really understanding trauma. That's just such a fascinating, the first place that you went. Yeah, that's interesting. I never even considered that. I mean, I collected my own handfuls and handfuls of diagnoses. I've been in the system. I've been diagnosed with OCD, with generalized anxiety disorder, with panic disorder. On one hand, I think for a lot of us, and at the time for me, it was relieving. It was a name, a thing I had, a group of people that also had it, a Mm. treatment protocol. Though I came to realize the treatment wasn't really treatment. It was more, the word I would use is management. Because at that time, I truly believed that I had these diagnoses because of my genetics. I saw very similar habits and patterns and symptoms in my family, my sister, my mom, my dad, right, included. So all evidence for me that this was genetically transmitted in the field. You know, I was taught that that it mapped on to, I didn't have enough neurotransmitters in my brain, right? So for a very long while, I got relief. I had the thing it was, though over time, I came to understand how limiting those labels can be for some of us, because I did come to realize we now know that we're not as impacted solely by our genetics as we once thought. We all have genes, but we have a bit of control, we now know. Our daily lifestyle choices are going to be a factor in whether or not the genes express. We get that diagnosis or that disorder or not. And so for me, that was the first time that I even was able to entertain a possibility of healing, of getting better. So when we think about diagnoses and labels, like I said, I think for some of us, it can be very relieving, can help us to feel understood and not alone. But there's, I think, another side of it sometimes. And depending on the story of the diagnosis, are we stuck in this forever or can we actually change and heal? So one of my messages is the latter, is that we actually can heal, that these things aren't as set in stone as we once believed them to be. Isn't that the best news ever? Isn't that amazing? I talk about this a lot because yes, and scary. Yes. There's also a big part of us. And if I'm honest, I heard the news, Zoe, but that news didn't apply to me. (laughs) Well, it is exciting and scary. You're right. Because it's like, well, if I'm more responsible for my experience of life and more responsible, I mean, not what's happened to you, but you can do something in the present to change that. That's the empowerment, isn't it? That is really scary. Yes. Really scary. And like I said, there was a big part of me that was almost battling to convince, to show myself that I was right, that it I wasn't the one that was going to change. I wasn't the one that could utilize these tools. And for me, it was shedding that. It was actually stepping into that empowerment and actually changing that belief that actually, yeah, I can change. And I am. Look at me. I'm doing it. What was the breakthrough moment when you thought, oh, shit, this self-healing thing works. I'm different. I'm changing. I don't recognize my experience of life. And then I guess when you were like, shit, It's my purpose to share this with others. When did that happen? How did that happen? It wasn't like a moment because very gradually as I started to shift the way I treated my body, as I started to become more conscious and build those practices and expand those practices into my daily life, which then helped me to witness how habited and patterned I was making space for me to, you know, begin to make new choices very gradually I started to step forward to see the changes. So very gradually, I started to then 
look at my practice that I was still going into week after week and seeing those clients and working that old way, beginning to question and beginning to question. And I share it as being more of a process than a eureka. I'm moving and changing and doing things differently moment because there was a lot of shedding. There was a lot of myself as a human, like I said earlier, and also myself as a practitioner that hung my hat on that old way of thinking, on that old belief system. I also had my livelihood wrapped up in how I was practicing. That's how I paid the bills for my partner and I. And so for me, I'm looking over and it was a hard realization. I devoted a lot of years of training to this one model and my whole foundation was now shaking and was destabilized. So it took moments of acknowledging the power of the change that I was seeing in my life to begin to shed and peel away question and more fully question and then really make the decision. Uh, Once I started to share online, I started to speak my truth online at that point while I still had the practice and more and more going into that old work was feeling less and less in alignment and more and more difficult. And for me at that point, alignment was an incredibly important part of my journey. I'd gotten really good Zoe at living out of alignment. I was a pro at doing things for other people because for whatever reasons, but not in alignment. So (laughs) that wasn't going to work anymore. And then of course I made the really difficult decision to close that practice down to more fully focus though empowering decision and freeing as well to focus holistically. So I wouldn't say it was a moment because like I said, there was a lot wrapped up in it where a lot of healing and a lot of challenging my own identity was happening behind the scenes. Do you still have time for your own healing today? That is my being. Being that is healing and doing the work is the byproduct of that. Meaning even moments when I'm chatting with people, they're still, you know, mm. I'm, I'm human and I'm a human in healing. And, you know, some things challenge me a bit more because of my own past and my own experiences. And even for me, the camera, the fact that I'm looking at you through a camera right now, That was a whole process of getting used to being on a camera. So I am healing every moment of every day, putting that aside because I'm working now because we're human and there's things that are challenging us in any environment we're in and bring up aspects of our journey. So we've talked about awareness as the first step. You mentioned it just then, noticing the patterning. This is why I get excited for people because... The moment you notice it, it's kind of hard to go back, actually, because you can see like, wow, I give my power away. That was a big one I started to notice. Wow, I say yes when I want to say no. What's that about? You know, and, and I would start to write down all these patterns and your daily journal is an incredible resource for that. But then it gets really kind of icky, right? Because our nervous system and you talk about homeostasis, look, wants us to stay the same. So can you talk to how people actually begin when they have the awareness and they're like, okay, I can see I'm not present. I'm actually quite codependent. I think I'm trauma bonded with my husband or my girlfriend or my, you know, whoever, my best friend, but what now? (laughs) Can you talk to the exciting bit when you start to notice the changes? Yeah. The bridge between knowing and doing is, is quite a difficult bridge to build and to continue to consistently cross because you're right. You're speaking it very eloquently and beautifully. Zoe, our subconscious that autopilot doesn't want to change. And a lot of us are stuck in, and I think this might even be one of the more frustrating places to be is looking 
from that knowing better place and wondering why the heck we can't do better. And some of us aided along by the very well-intentioned humans in our life who are wondering what the hell is wrong with us and why we, we can't stop doing these things or picking these partners. And you know, You're so right. Awareness and the being stuckness is the worst place. Hard. It's hard. And a lot of times, you know, you want to punch your best friend out because you know, <laughs> and yet when you go to make that effort, whether it's the first time or the third time, you know, or the fifth time, you're trying to keep consistently doing something new, resistance pops up. And the way I define resistance, so let's go back to the subconscious. It likes to keep us in the familiar for an evolutionary reason, which is to keep us safe or so it thinks. Because that which is predictable, the things we've done before, so this is where it's not logical, because I'm sure listeners are like, well, wait a minute, the things I've done before have brought me terrible results in life. Why would I want to go down that path? It knows it. And that's all the subconscious is interested in. It knows you survived it last time. So it assumes that you got this and it'll do all the things it does to adapt to whatever the thing is and onward you'll go. So it doesn't actually like to change because to the subconscious, the unknown, that big question mark, not knowing what happens next could be the most threatening thing in the world because it it could be the end of the organism, the system, life itself. So it prefers those familiar ruts. That's what I was seeing time and time again with my clients. We'd have these beautiful conversations from the conscious mind, knowing better, all of these insights and awarenesses, yet I can't bridge that gap. I can't do better. So what is resistance? When I go to do that new thing, to say no, one of two things happen. Some of us get both. Some of our resistance lives in our mind. We have a million reasons why not to do the thing. We convince ourselves out of it. You know what? Saying no is mean, so I'm not going to say no. Or I can imagine, oh, if I say no to this person, this is how they'll react. So you know what? We logic. We try to explain away or we, before we know it, we keep ourselves safe because we've convinced ourselves out of, just through thought alone, doing that new thing or maintaining that new thing. For some of us, the resistance drops down into our body and we might feel an agitation. We might feel just different than we normally feel. Something just feels off. It feels weird. It feels weird when I did this new thing. Again, before I know it, if that happens consistently enough, or if I listen to it, I'm right back in those familiar ruts. So I share this for a couple of reasons. First, offering reassurance for anyone out there that has tried to change a million and one times, unable to do so, that you're not alone and that you're human We don't want to change as human as much as, again, the logical mind can convince us and our friends and our loved ones can tell us all of the reasons why to do things differently. And maybe our life even told us all of the reasons why to do things differently. Yet logic isn't enough alone. We have to learn how to do the new things through the discomfort of doing those new things. It's so important because I think sometimes in the kind of online world, particularly with how many coaches and, you know, and I love that world. It lights me up. But sometimes I think there's this kind of limiting narrative, which is like, change your thoughts, change your life. Boom. You know, and it's like, that is not my experience. Change, particularly these deep rooted patterns, particularly healing my codependency and my perfectionism and my people pleasing and trying to speak up is excruciatingly hard would be my experience of it like sometimes I have felt like I've put a boundary down with family and honestly felt like I was going to die the guilt was so immense 
And it's almost like I want to pick that drug up again and go, I didn't mean it. I'll come to the lunch, whatever time you want. <laughs> you know, because it's like, it's so painful. And I think it's almost like walking through the hot coals or there is a death involved in this work. And I think it's so profound when you talk about that, because that is my lived experience. I don't think it's talked about enough. There's a death, there's a death of an old version of us. There's a death of their old version of our relationships. There's a lot of mourning that goes along with, with change. And I think for a lot of us, it prevents us from changing. I call what you described um, very beautifully, Zoe, my feel bads. And my feel bads were so strong that I would play out the scenario, whatever I was imagining I would want to do, say no, put up the boundary, do the thing. And it would be so terrible in my mind how I'd imagine they were going to act that I wouldn't even get to the moment <laughs> of doing the thing. I wouldn't even get to the place where I saw their actual reaction and then feel worse about because I would feel myself so bad that I just wouldn't do it. So for me, discovering a that pattern, what I came to realize in that pattern and just for the listeners out there who are maybe thinking, well, I want to be kind. I want to show up for people in my life. You know, I want to say yes and be present and be supportive. My response to that is acknowledging how important it is to honor our authentic needs. Because after living a lifetime as I did of what I thought was being selflessly there for everyone around me, what I came to realize was the disservice that I was doing to all of the relationships and everyone around me. Because inevitably, when my needs were consistently unmet, as they inevitably will be, when you say yes, or you're there for someone else, and it's not in alignment with what you need in that moment, we don't actually look at the role we're playing. I never once said, well, Nicole, you know, you keep showing. I actually got upset and resentful at everyone in my life who needed me. So while putting up boundaries and shifting our way of being and doing the work to change, while it likely will cause ripples in the relationships around us and might be uncomfortable in the immediate short term, the assurance here is that in the long term, the more we are able to create that space to authentically honor ourselves and our needs and our relationships, we can decrease then the possibility of that resentment. So what we're left with is not only a more authentic relationship, possibly for both of us, a more sustainable one, one that can maintain over time and not run the risk of being so upset by that person that it either just leaks out and you're just a crappy friend or partner or whomever, or you actually leave the relationship. I love how you talk about people pleasing. There's a brilliant post where you talk about what people pleasing really is. People pleasing is when we struggle, you know, around disappointment, around honoring ourselves and our authenticity. When we are attempting to get our needs met, whatever they might be, emotional connection, being seen, being heard through someone else or the role that we're playing for someone else. So I picked up people pleasing very early on. I realized that the way to get that connection or the version of connection that my family was able to offer me was by being stress-free to them, by performing, by not only performing and not causing trouble, but by bringing home good grades, by being a star athlete, by getting the validation based on how I was performing. And before long, that showed up as people-pleasing in my relationships, where it didn't matter what I wanted or needed in that moment, as long as you were, at least to my perception, happy, and we were, to my perception, conflict-free, I was okay. And like I said, before long, what that turned into is a litany of relationships that not only felt unfulfilling, 
but I actually felt quite angry and quite annoyed with the people around me who I just continued to perceive as being unable to care about me and my needs, not realizing that they probably had no idea what they were because I never voiced them. How would they know? And a lot of us brings me to another thing. I think that a lot of us do. We assume that they should. We assume that people should in some way have mind reading abilities like possibly again, a remnant of childhood when to us, it seems like our parents maybe did if they were attuned, have mind reading capabilities. I'm here to assure us all, none of us know exactly what's going on in someone else's mind. So if you are the person out there that's wondering why your partner doesn't just know, it's because you might not be showing them as clearly as you think you are. It is our responsibility to tell, to say, to, like I said, bring those needs to the table. And I think resentments, in my experience, are just a signpost today that I need to set a boundary. Mm-hmm. And for feeling resentful, it's normally because I have given my power away in some way. And isn't that the path of the self-healer? Is instead of all that energy of frustration and going out there at our relationships, it's like kind of turning that back on to ourselves and thinking, well, what's my part? What am I doing to contribute to this? Yes. I believe that we are all contributing something to every experience that we're having. Our way of being, in my opinion, contributes something because we bring energy, we bring ourselves, we bring how we're expressing or not expressing into any moment. So the more aware that we can become of ourselves, you know, and all of the different messages that we're sending out and how we're relating and how we're being in our worlds, the more we can empower ourselves to create change if those ways aren't working. So we were talking about, weren't we, the hot coals and the discomfort is the key to just sit with the discomfort. When we talk about and dropping into the body and the discomfort, I want to kind of make clear here that many of us are probably dropping into a body that's dysregulated, that our nervous system is in a state of activation. So with that said, it's not just dive into the deep end, right? Grin and bear the discomfort. And then you showed yourself you can do it. We actually want to avoid that. um, Yeah. Overwhelm and already overwhelmed. Re-traumatizing, right? Be re-traumatizing. So it's not just going into the body and feeling all the discomfort that's in there. It's creating a safe experience of doing that. It's empowering ourselves that we can begin to touch some of the discomfort that might live in us. For some of us, for a lifetime, it's lived in there safely. And that we can bring ourselves back to that calm, right? Here's how it all connects back. We can become dysregulated gently, not in the deep end of dysregulation. We become slightly dysregulated. And over time, we can teach ourselves and empower ourselves confidently that we can return ourselves to that safe baseline. So when we're dropping into our body, if we're dropping into a dysregulated nervous system, we're probably in addition to the consciousness practice that we already talked about, we're probably going to want to build in some polyvagal work or some nervous system work. We can do this through the breath. There's different ways that we can harness intentional breath work practices to help our body actually regulate itself. So I'm happy you asked me this and gave me the opportunity because it's not just diving in, tolerating discomfort, sweating through it and saying you did it. We want to be able to teach ourselves confidence in this tolerating discomfort, the ability to safely feel uncomfortable, feel dysregulated and bring ourselves back to that calm. It reminds me when I was first practicing setting boundaries and being more authentic and I didn't do it first with my family. 
which was someone very smart advised me this. They were like, why don't you do it first with your hairdresser? Because don't you always say that you love your hair, but you hate it when they've finished it? And I was like, that's right. So I remember like the first time she's like, do you like your hair? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and I was able to blurt it out. And that's what I love about what you teach as well is these micro steps of retraining, not only our subconscious, but our nervous system that, you know, don't set the boundary with your toxic mum first, you know, that's going to be really tough. Right. I'm, I'm laughing because I too did something very similar to my hairdresser. Um, for me, it was professionally, it was work. It was right. Quote unquote strangers on the internet who wanted to do this request or have this thing to me that felt a little less scary though. I was still frightened, whatever screen name, username, right. Would drop in with a request. And I was going to say no for whatever reason or decline, you know, for schedule unavailability or whatever the case was. I would feel like, oh my gosh, this person, I don't even know who they are, right? It was so hard. However, it was less threatening and less scary than doing that too with my family who over time, and I talk about this in my book as well, I finally evolved and gained the confidence in setting some pretty hard and strict boundaries um, within my family that really helped me create space to go on and heal. So my suggestion of practicing you know, with my professional engagements did go a long way. It did over time translate to while it was the scariest thing in the world to then begin to also do it with people closer to me. It gave me the confidence to know one of two things that either the large majority of the time, everything I imagined terrible that was going to happen didn't only a small percent did it. So I was able to reframe the inevitability of this terrible response to see that not everyone actually responds terribly And then in those smaller percentage where there was an uncomfortable response, I got another gift. I learned I could tolerate it. I learned I would be okay. I learned that while, yeah, maybe I didn't love that I disappointed whomever that was, I got to also teach myself that I could tolerate the experience of disappointing someone that was increasingly closer to me. Because that's another reality, Zoe, that I think a lot of us struggle with. We're going to disappoint people in our lives. There's going to be some moments where I just don't have the resources, no matter how well-intentioned I am, to show up for someone else, no matter how much I care about them. That goes with parents too. We're going to disappoint our children. That goes for children listening. We're going to disappoint our parents. Disappointment is inevitable in life. Yeah, especially if you're going to be authentic. My girls teach me everything I need to know about boundaries. Can you brush your teeth? No. It's like, wow. Like we condition this out of children normally, but they're actually like an amazing model for like expressing their needs and her boundary setting is like second to none. I cannot get her to put her shoes on some days and I kind of marvel at it. Like there's no, she's not concerned about how I'm reacting to that. And yet as an adult, you know, I would never scream no in someone's face. I'd be petrified of upsetting them it's just fascinating how innate some of this stuff is that gets conditioned out of us isn't it yes I mean I love that you brought that up I think children are the most intuitive connected like I said even earlier attuned creatures and what that does look like is boundary use now whether or not you want to you know allow the no shoes but this looks yeah. so moment, right I mean there's so many moments sometimes too where you know a child doesn't want to go hug whomever it is that you would like them to hug. And as a parent, I'll go hug because I don't want someone so to be upset. Like, why aren't you, right? For whatever, there's so many micro moments 
And again, this is when it happens consistently. This isn't the one-off, right? So just to assure parents, this is consistently when you have a child who's directly now or indirectly attuning you, giving you cues of something that's working or not working. And when that's constantly overrode or, you know, explained away or advised to do the opposite for whatever reason, as a parent, you're deeming, that's when, again, we begin to condition our children away from that intuition. So I believe not only are they really great at using boundaries, children are so connected to their essence, to their just way of being in the world. Most of the time, regardless of whoever's watching, they're just doing their thing. And that's another thing I believe that over time, again, very gradually, sometimes very indirectly, consistently enough of these things happen, become conditioned out of that. It's so fascinating. And I'm wondering, did you ever question your parents and did you say something up here like because I did and I remember I got that kind of like oh there's nothing to see here and that really disconnected me from my intuition and my truth and I'm wondering if you had that experience so the indirect feeling in my family was not one of openness around conversation thought idea feeling there was a lot that was I think the the saying swept under the rug There was a lot of big things that I think were seemingly apparent that weren't being spoken about. So consistently enough that was, I was exposed to that. I was modeled to that. I think I implicitly got a feeling as a child that things weren't open to talk about, even big glaring things that were happening. So I think I adopted that model. And if you were to speak to my parents, they would describe me or would have described me as a secretive kid. And I think that's a result of that because I never would go and share about myself. And I think as a byproduct of that, I don't imagine I would have ever questioned or asked. Like I said, I think it was because this is underlying implicit, like we don't talk about that feeling in my household that again, I think is quite common for some of us. And isn't it just so then such a testament to the ability that we're able to heal whatever experience we have, because here you are with a platform of millions. I mean, you probably reach 10, 20 million people a day with reshares and, you know, speaking your truth from that, you know, secretive locked away. Isn't that profound? I just got chills hearing you say that. And I think, you know, that's why for me, kind of going back full circle in a way, when I made the decision to begin to use social media as a platform for truth speaking, again, no anticipation that it would grow to be a platform, a movement and everything that it now is. For me, that was an exercise in giving myself that gift in healing. So what I was referring to in the beginning and how important that was for me. And like I said, as scary as that was for having one person on the receiving end of it, because I had never done that. I didn't do that even with my peers, none of my friends, not even really my partners really got to hear deeply what was going on with me because I just never shared in that way. So the idea of sharing with anonymous strangers online, as appealing as it was for my healing to give myself that experience of doing it, I said, when we began, it was really, really scary. And do you think spiritually you were given this as an assignment in this lifetime and you were given that unique set of experiences in your childhood and yet your gifts for communication? Do you feel like that's a spiritual assignment? I know it was at this point. I think everything from the family I was born into, and this is coming from, if you would have asked me, I actually have a very pivotal moment. I read a book, my partner and I, Lolly and I read the same book, and it was about a psychologist 
Wayne Dyer. He found his calling and he was writing the particular book I was reading. I forget the title of that one, but so I can see clearly now. I forget the first one I read. I read all mm-hmm. of them. So okay. I forget where I met him, though he was sharing a little bit about his journey as a psychologist and transitioning out into doing the more kind of teaching spiritual work that he's doing now. And I read the book and I was like, oh, okay, interesting book. And Lolly read the book and she's like, oh my God, I resonate. Oh my, you know, something about his story. And I'm like, hmm. I don't really resonate with this idea of purpose or passion or path, all the P's. I actually was like, I didn't get that genetic chip. That missed me. I don't have one of those. Intuitively, growing up, I was fascinated with the mind. I love wondering about people, trying to understand them. So I wanted to be a psychologist for as long as you would have heard me speaking about what I wanted to be. But you never would have heard me describing it or resonating with the concept of passion, purpose. So I share that story about the Wayne Dyer book because now I read his work and I will be the first one to proclaim, like I just answered you so assuredly, yes, this is, I believe I found my passion chip. I think again, just to kind of wrap this all in, I was so disconnected. I wasn't attuned to my authentic self. I wasn't even in my physical body to let alone understand right me in that really deep way, let alone my soul's essence. So of course I didn't think I had a chip. I was so focused on survival for 30 plus years. I didn't have time for purpose, right? That Maslowian pyramid purpose is at the top. My pyramid was in shambles. So again, I share all of that to very overwhelmingly say, yes, um, I believe that what this was about for me coming from that place of disconnection, building that bridge to change and to transformation. And now, of course, sharing my story and urging, you're never going to hear me saying it's my story and my story alone and listen to my journey. And that's the only way to be. I'm actually here. I hope my message is heard more of urging everyone to begin to share their beautiful stories of healing, because in each of our stories, I feel like we as a whole, as a collective can evolve. So powerful, you know, and the more I reflect on purpose, I used to think of it like, what's my purpose? And I used to go on webinars, like five steps to find your purpose, like what crock of shit all that stuff is. But really, what if our purpose is all just to get back to how we were born into the world, which is pure love and connection? And what if we're all here just to do that? And some people, a couple of steps ahead the road like you, get to kind of be a lighthouse for those of us who are tracking that way or want to track that way. Like, what if that's humanity's purpose is to like heal? I'm smiling really big because the the final chapter in my book is called Interdependence. So the first 12 chapters are about self-healing, you know, our past experiences, recognizing our patterns, healing from our past so that we can create this future. And then I very intentionally made sure that the 13th chapter, the final chapter of the book is the purpose of it all. And it's called interdependence. And it's this idea. And I present this idea of authentic relationships where we're all inhabiting our beingness going back that pure essence so that we can be globally connected to the collective. So I love that you are acknowledging that. That is my belief as what this is all about here Like I said, I hope that the work I put out each and every day and my new book, How to Do the Work, I'm hoping that is a guidepost. Like I said, it doesn't have to map on to exactly everyone's journey out there. We're all unique. The goal of this is to connect to our uniqueness. So I always end every episode with the same question, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I imagine there might not be too many surprises as to what my gift will be. 
I would impart the gift of consciousness, the gift of presence. Because like I said, for so many of us, that in and of itself is a tall order to practice that, though it's, I believe, can be the most healing experience for humanity, really. So waving the wand and urging everyone and whether or not I need to impart you with that gift, knowing that that gift is inside of you and that we can all begin to access our own practice of consciousness. And I believe that, like I said earlier, is the foundation not only of change, which is what most of us want to do, but just to end it beautifully on what we're talking about of human connection and of what this is all about. That's so beautiful. And I love how you say it's already in you. That's the gift, isn't it? To know it's already there. Thank you so much. Us are looking for are in there. I know that's a cliche thing. I think, you know, again, as we all do the work and live the journey of healing, you get to live that. And that is empowering experiences, I believe, that us humans get to have. Well, thank you. It's been an absolute joy and an honor. Thank you so much for your time. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.